0: Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to Osh's big anniversary sale celebration May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at
1: Osh.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. Hey QED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious. Mindshift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED.
2: Hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm
0: Scott Schaefer, and today on The Breakdown, we're welcoming back a woman who made history in 2010 when she was named Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. She was the first person of color to lead the high court, and over her decade there, earned a reputation for promoting civility and collaboration. Even as public opinion of the judiciary more broadly sank to record lows, unfortunately,
2: we are excited to welcome back to the breakdown Tani Kantil sakauye She stepped down from the chief justice position in January and is now CEO of the Public Policy Institute of California. They're a respected nonpartisan think tank. We're going to talk to her about current events roiling the U.S. Supreme Court, her legacy, and more. But first, Scott, Senator Feinstein goes to Washington. Dianne Feinstein returned on uh, Wednesday and was in Judiciary uh, Committee. Thursday morning um, to lend that vote that Democrats have been looking for.
0: Yeah, exactly. There were some judges held up and several of those with her vote uh, did make it out to the floor. There was one that still held up a little more controversial, even with all the Democrats voting. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, you know, we, we saw the images of her. Uh, she had been cleared to travel by her doctors. She has what I guess you would say is long, long, Shingles, you know, we've heard of long COVID. She's still suffering yeah. from that, and you can see she's not really that able to walk. She was in a wheelchair. She looked uh, frail, very yeah. frail, and she was about ninety minutes late for the judiciary committee meeting today. So I think it's still—I don't, not sure this resolves questions, the long-term questions about her ability to do the job. I mean, she is back there, but uh, right. still very much recovering.
2: Well, and, you know, I mean, the question of judicial confirmations has been the sort of most pressing one immediately because obviously, you know, Biden only has a certain amount of time until the next election. And I think after, you know, how uh, former President Trump really packed the courts, Democrats have been very eager to get their own nominees going. But there's a lot of other issues that she's going to have to deal with. She said in her statement returning, you know, I'm here to help deal with the debt ceiling. I mean, Democrats cannot afford to have missing Democratic senators on the debt ceiling. Um, you know, we don't know both where Republicans are going to go, but also where Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sin- Cinema will be if... Kamala Harris will have to break a tie. I mean, there's a lot of there's pressing There's a lot issues. of moving
0: parts. And there's also a lot. She's not the only older senator. I mean, there are a lot of senators on both sides of the aisle that are well into their 80s. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, you could say she's frail. Their majority is frail as well. And so, you know, the debt ceiling is coming up. That's going to be a critical vote. Um, Julie Sue's nomination to be labor secretary. So, yeah, there's a lot of reasons. I think, you know, probably Governor Newsom is very relieved that she's back there because there had been growing pressure on him to fulfill a promise he made a couple of years ago to a- appoint a black woman to replace Senator Feinstein if for some reason she couldn't fill out the rest of her term. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not convinced that, uh, you know, this does resolve that entirely. We'll see how she does. And, uh, you know, she really, it's not entirely clear what course this is going to take. It's a nasty disease, especially when you're older.
2: Right. And I mean, we should say very respectfully, but there was also questions even prior to the shingles thing about her mental acuity, just sort of if she was up to the job. I mean, she's 89. She has aged a lot in the last few years. And I think that, you know, the combination, uh, it feels like the 2024 election is very close, except for in a situation like this, right? Yeah, where every got moment a year and and a half left. yeah, um, and I think to your point yeah Newsom is real really hoping she can she can serve it out that would put him in less of an uncomfortable position. Uh, I'm sure the <laughs> candidates running to this. replace
0: her are pretty happy with the possible exception yeah. of Barbara Lee.
2: Um, All right. Well, before we go into a break, Scott, uh, Friday morning, Governor Gavin Newsom will be releasing his revised May budget proposal. We are expecting an even bigger deficit than the estimated $22.5 billion that he rolled out in January. Um, Anything you'll be watching for? I know in January he was very clear that he didn't want to make deep cuts to social services, education, health care. But this is going to get more tricky, especially given the reporting you've done on the delayed tax uh, deadline.
0: Exactly. You know, or they do the May revise because in April, usually, the tax uh, returns are in. They have a better sense of the revenue they're going to have for the next fiscal year. But of course, the IRS has, and the FTB, the Franchise Tax Board, have pushed that deadline back now to October. So, you know, the the budget that's announced this week tomorrow is going to be a lot squishier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and it's
2: always squishy. We should say always it's squishy. always based on projections. You know, and this estimates, will be projections right. on top
0: of projections. This yeah. Summer. So, you know, I think one thing I'm going to be looking for because I've done some reporting on this as well is care court funding. You mm-hmm. know, the, the counties and so it was seven or eight counties that are going to go first in implementing this new system of getting people into treatment for addiction and mental health problems, severe mental health problems. And the counties are a little freaked out because there isn't enough money to do all the things that they're going to be called on to do. And so they're looking in this budget for, you know, just how much uh, are they going to, is he going to be putting toward that? And then there's always questions about, yeah, climate change, the environment. We know that he wanted to scale some of that back or delay some of those investments. Right. Uh, and now, as you said, you know, he, it may have to be. uh, They may have to dip into the rainy day fund, which is what it's there for. Yeah.
2: Thirty seven billion we have in reserves. I mean, to me, though, I'm having a little bit of flashback. You know, when I showed up as a capital reporter, it was the end of 2009, the end of or 2008 Schwarzenegger's term, really deep recession, very deep cuts. Um, This is the first time Newsom's had to face these difficult questions. He's been in a really kind of. Lovely place as governor. And, you know, I I think it'll be really fascinating to see how he engages with Democrats who control the legislature um, and sort of what comes out of this. To your point, you know, climate folks, there's a lot of concerns about transportation funding um, in general. And I think that, you know, is this going to be the smoke and mirrors we remember from the 2000s when there's a lot of kind of. Things get moved around to make it feel like it's not as bad as yeah. it is. Well,
0: and of course, Senate Democrats want to raise corporate taxes and some other things to to so that the cuts aren't as deep. The governor said that was a non-starter. But as you know, these are always negotiations. Um, and the, re- the revenue is even a, a negotiation. Sometimes the legislature, the LAO, come up with different numbers. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. It's going to play out in the next uh, month or so.
2: All right. All right, so we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we will be joined by former California Supreme Court Chief Justice Tani Kantil-Saka You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we are excited to welcome back Tani kantil saka She served for 12 years as Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. She's now CEO of the Public Policy Institute of California. They are a nonpartisan think tank. Retired Justice kantil saka Welcome back to Political Breakdown. Good to have you. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me back. How are we supposed to address you now? I mean, what what is the proper way?
1: I retain title still, and in 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 cards and to sign. But I, I really am happy to hear my first name, which I haven't heard for thirty two years, and that's Tawny.
0: That's not Chief Justice America. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, we'll still stick with the title on introduction. Um, well, to start with, you know, you were on this court for the the high court for over a decade. Um, our justices do have to run for re-election every 12 years. I- I'm wondering why now, why step down? It is not a decision a lot of
1: judges would make, I think. <laughs> a lot of people want to serve as long as they can. It was a difficult decision, and I created multiple lists of pros and cons. And I really didn't make the decision until I, the like, last minute to actually put in my papers for retention mm-hmm. election. But I had been weighing the concept for some time and it was the best time to leave the branch because I was leaving it with the highest budget that we brought in in its history. I'd really done many and most, if not all, of the initiatives I sought out to achieve. 32 years is a long time and I knew that if I re up for another 12, I would stay through any crisis for the next 12. And so I had an opportunity when I heard that PPIC had an opening Mm. and that really made the mix uh, different. Now all of a sudden being at public policy institute of california being its president just all of a sudden was very alluring as a possible a different choice, different journey.
0: I want to go back a little bit to when you were named to the court by Governor Schwarzenegger, and I think you were sworn in, I think, the same day as Jerry Brown in 2011, 2011. Um, And the mix on the court was very different. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, seven of the justices on the court uh, now, just one, Carol Corrigan, uh, was there when you joined, and most of uh, the members when you joined were appointed by Republican governors. That is not the case anymore. How did you see the court evolve in terms of Collegiality, its take on issues, mm-hmm. and how it approached legal matters,
1: yes. I will say that during my last uh, during my time on the court, It was the most change in seats that that bench has ever seen in its history. Prior to that, they were pretty monolithic, one or two changes maybe every five to seven or ten years. So yes, when I came on, there were more Republican-appointed judges who ultimately retired, I think five or six in all. So I saw incredible change. But each governor uh, has picked, in my mind, truly remarkable people who have been brilliant, secure, open-minded, that are agreeable, that are happy to hear other ideas. No argument at the Supreme Court goes unconsidered or undebated. And so even though there was incredible change, it uh, the people made all the difference. And the people who were there and the people I worked with respected the office, knowing that we hold it in stewardship. And so it was not ever personal. It was about a, a, conf- you know, a confluence of ideas and disagreements, but respecting each other all the way. And our political party didn't enter into any of it, honestly. I mean, you were also
2: not just... Uh, the political makeup of the court didn't just change, though. The, the sort of type of person, right? You had several justices, three, I believe, who had never been judges before appointed. I mean, we mentioned you were the first person of color to lead the court. You were the first mom to lead the court. Like, how do you think those diversity of viewpoints impacted what you're talking about,
1: how you approach these cases? Well, I think it had a twofold effect. And first of all, it really enriched our discussions around the table, the seven of us sitting near each other looking eye to eye. And we had some of the funniest, most irreverent (laughs) conversations that had to do with our differences, our age differences, our culture differences, our backgrounds. It made for a lot of bases of friendship because we were so different in how we contributed. But it also brought a different lens to how we saw the law and how we approached it and how we saw the facts fitting into it. So as a result, it meant that we had a broader view of life when we considered the rule of law. And I'll just give you a quick example. When I was on the bench early on, uh, Justice Marvin Baxter served on the court and his family, they're farmers from Fowler. And so whenever we discussed anything about commerce or change, Justice Baxter would bring about, well, what about about the farmer? What about ag? What about the farm workers who live on the property? And it brought a whole nother Mm. perspective as we began to consider what the rule of law meant to that population.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too, because we don't talk about geographic diversity much on the on the court. But uh, there was a time when I think there was no one from L.A. Uh, Justice Groban now is on. But the chief, Patricia Guerrero, is from Imperial County. Uh, like you uh, had f- a parent who's a farm worker. How does that, both the geographic diversity as well as the, you know, the, the, just the. Yeah, it's like the we ra- focus
1: on politics. So yeah, much, but, but, but you
0: have a different point of view if you grew up in the Imperial Valley, just as, you know, Justice Baxter did.
1: Absolutely. It adds to the richness. It adds to the prism of how we see the law and how the, how we think about the people who it affects. And the other great thing about having now justices in Los Angeles, like Justice Jenkins and Justice Groban and the chief justice in San Diego, is it brings the state together more. We are a state court, but at the and we sit in Sacramento, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. But we were criticized for being sort of a San Francisco-centric court mm-hmm. because so many of us lived around the San Francisco area. But now we really represent the state. I mean,
2: one of your... At least like externally, what's seen as your legacy, I think, is bringing, again, a diversity, of viewpoint, which is in part sort of advocating for the poor on the court. This idea of seeing through things through a poverty lens because your family didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I'm curious, is that what you see as your legacy is like, is that a proper framework? Um, I'm thinking about work on, you know, lowering fines and fees, bail reform. How,
1: how do you sort of view that? No, I think that's right. I brought the lens of the person on the outside looking in and the person on the outside trying to get in and understand it. And so I brought a different kind of lens about barriers that people face at the door or barriers people face before they get to the door. And then that's also what informed my language access work about just trying to be able to understand what's going on in court and understanding how what happens there affects not only the person in front of you, but their families, their children, their aunts and uncles, generations, and that's where points of view arise about the judiciary from the family that's affected.
0: Well, your husband Uh, is retired now, but he was a Sacramento police uh, officer. And I'm wondering how did that uh, affect the way you saw issues around criminal justice and and, uh, crime and punishment?
1: I think the beauty of that is because I know my husband's friends and I know how human they are. Sure, they wear the badge and the uniform, but they're also just people. And so also they have the same foibles and the same attributes as the rest of us. So there was never, for me anyway, any starry-eyed look about how criminal justice is performed, how officers do their duty. I have wide latitude for it that mistakes humans make and the intent that may or may not Be behind it. So I think knowing my husband's work and knowing how he did it and knowing his friends and the bureaucracy, it made me think more expansively about criminal justice and reform. Hmm. I wonder though, I mean, you're kind of hitting on this, like.
2: Police are people, too. And with all of the challenges that that brings, I mean, we are hearing a lot right now about yet another scandal at a police department here, Antioch, uh, racist, sexist text, uh, really targeting activists. Having seen this from both the perspective of, you know, being the spouse of a police officer, seeing what comes before the court, do you think we need to sort of think about police reform in a more
1: wholesale way? I think what we're talking about now and discussing is important. And I also think that we do need to concentrate on the values of the people who wear the uniform and act under color of law and who have the badge. And I think that as a result of my husband and uh, his work— and what I expect, I expect a much higher bar. I expect people who go into public service to really have the highest of ethics because of the power that's behind it. So, yes, I think we should be thinking about law enforcement in a more holistic way. And I think we should be thinking about the laws in the same way.
0: We're going through a period here uh, in California and across the country, really, where there's a lot of focus on district attorneys, uh, progressive DAs versus more traditional DAs. And a lot of the focus comes down to Proposition 47, which the voters passed, uh, which uh, made a lot of uh, nonviolent, non sex crimes that had been felonies, drug related, mostly uh, misdemeanors, property crimes, the threshold for felonies was raised. How do you feel, you know, with both your personal experience on the bench, but also the wife of a cop, um, how do you see Prop 47? Does it need to be reformed? Would you like to see it reformed? Does it contribute to the issues we're talking about now, especially around property crimes?
1: I think Prop 47, like much of the last decade of criminal justice reform, criminal realignment, the other propositions, but Prop 47 being one of the most litigious of the cases (laughs) for interpreting Prop 47, I think it's a time for reflection now. We've had about 10 years or so of criminal realignment and these propositions, and we should take time to analyze the data and see whether or not they delivered on the safe neighborhoods and schools that Prop 47 was titled by the governor or by the attorney general in the ballot. We need to take a look at the data and decide, is this serving the purpose of public safety? Is this what we thought the outcome would be? And once we have that data, then I think we need to say yes or no. Do I think anecdotally that knowing a property crime is skyrocketed, particularly misdemeanors, thefts under nine hundred and fifty dollars, car thefts or joyriding under nine hundred and fifty dollars? I think there's some room for debate there about whether or not we should be considering changes to that in some vein, smart changes, not draconian changes. But surely we did not intend this.
0: And of course, voters would have to make those changes, right?
1: Yes. All right. Well, let's switch gears. I do want to ask you a
2: little bit. I mentioned at the top SCOTUS, and we have seen in recent years a steady stream of stories detailing trips and money and gifts. One uh, Supreme Court justice in particular, Clarence Thomas, has taken from a billionaire GOP activist. There's some other questions about some of the other justices, uh, but I think it's fair to say that the allegations about what Thomas has done are the most egregious. What What goes through your mind when you're looking at this? Like as somebody who sat on the high court in California, what's your just like gut reaction?
1: Well, my gut reaction is that judges in California can't accept a gift over $50. And then we have to report it, even if it is under $50. And what we typically get are books and plaques. (laughs) And so most of us have to refuse anything that's offered. And we all do refuse. I I will say that when I read those stories, I worry about the public trust and confidence in the judiciary. I worry about the takeaway from the public about the ethics involved, right? Because the conflict of uh, the conflict, the appearance of conflict is not only about actual conflict, but what appears to be conflict. So it's worrisome. They don't seem worried, though. Well, they have a life appointment. I, I don't know how worried I'd be either.
0: Well, do you think that, I mean, t- Congress is talking about changing some of these things, but they have limited authority over the over the courts. What would you like to see happen? And. You know, quite honestly, I think if were, everything is so partisan now, if this was S- Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, I think there'd be calls on the Republican side for impeachment. You know, what should... Uh,
1: How sh- do we do this? Yeah, what, the Supreme Court. Yeah, like, to, that's the point, right? I mean, b-
0: yeah. Based on what we know, should he be there?
1: Well, I, I don't know that, that we can say that any of this affected... Justice Thomas's rulings. I don't know that I've seen that evidence, but I would say that this is injurious to the third branch of government. And right now, with uh, the way Congress as is uh, sometimes at a stalemate and the governor's executive orders are being challenged, the judicial branch is, chur- is churning along. They're one of the most active branches. I would hope, what I'd like to see, is that the justices themselves decide Amongst themselves that they're going to take a leadership role and they're going to institute ethics and they are going to teach it, train it and follow it. And much like the lower federal courts, uh, justice judges do. And I think it has to come from within and everyone has to be a part of it. You're
2: listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Maurice Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we're talking with former California Supreme Court Chief Justice Tani Contiel saka This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to KQED.org. So I'm curious. Um, we have seen a lot of debates, you know, the, over what we're talking about the ethics of the court. Um, but the other sort of big thing that has happened was clearly the leak of the Dobbs decision. Um, again, watching that from afar, you must have been very relieved that never happened on your court. Uh, but what what impact does that have? And in, in, I don't know what what are your understanding more than the rest of us do about the inner workings of a high court? Like, why would somebody do that?
1: I can't speak for the intent. There's probably lots of reasons for a person to have done that, but I do think it's incredibly destructive to the trust that the justices and their staffs enjoy with each other. And it also, in my view, stifles and chills communication and the free exchange of ideas. If I want to play devil's advocate or I want to write to you a, a draft preliminary uh, memo that it, that questions your analysis, even though I ultimately agree with the result. Does that happen a lot? It does. I mean, my our colleagues, we, we challenge each other. We may agree on the result, but we have different ways of getting there. And it chills my ability to just sometimes write to a justice. I'm sorry, I don't understand it. Can you unpack this for me? So when you you know that anything could be released and embarrass the court or embarrass yourself, you're going to be a lot less forthcoming on your communication. Hmm.
0: Well, certainly you helped to, along with your predecessor, Ronald George, create that collegiality at the court. Before you left, you had your final press conference with the media. And one of the things you pointed out was the The increasing use of arbitration and mediation and some concerns about this private judging. Well, since then, you've decided to become a private judge and do some of this work, which is very lucrative. But did you do you see that? I mean, some are going to some see that and say that's a hypocrisy. It's, you know, a conflict of interest. I don't know what. But like, how did you make that decision?
1: Well, I first made it while I was chief justice when I instituted a free program using retired judges for the trial courts to use private, to use mediation and uh, settlement. So I had some finances available and we have a retired judges program and I had been intending to do this but didn't have the surplus. So finally had the money and started the retired judges mediation program. So created in the court for users, for free, an opportunity to have their cases mediated by a retired judge or justice.
0: But what you're doing is not free.
1: No, but I started it first because it's an equity question. A lot of private mediation arbitration isn't available because it's expensive. So for people who can't access that kind of mediation, they're getting the next best thing with retired judges who are being trained uh, by the judicial counsel's contractors to learn the skills and to provide the same program for free in the courts. And so I started that before I left. And then when I came out, I wasn't intending to do private judging. But I realize there's a part of me that still wants to... do some cases, to hear arguments, to offer advice, to consult, to do moot courts, uh, to do mediations. And so uh, I was approached and I said, I I have a full-time job and it takes all of my attention. And they said, well, if you have a Saturday free, if you have a weekend free, we'll take anything. Maybe times, there'll be times when things open up for you. And so I agreed to do that. So I do that. But I think the kinds of cases that you see there are not the kinds of cases that are that I've seen, I think, are are not going to go uh, make changes in the rule of law. We're still seeing that at the Supreme Court.
2: What does it say about our broader system that, you know, we have so many cases that not only go to mediation, but plea deals? I mean, there's a sense that if we didn't plea out cases, the entire justice system would grind to a halt just because of resources. Like, is that, do you think, in concert with what, I don't know, the Founding Fathers envisioned, like with, with what the system that we are
1: supposed to have? Well, I think um, the founding fathers, if I were to just sort of hazard a guess, they weren't seeking a judicial branch for the sake of a judicial branch. They were seeking a judicial branch to be separate from the other two to ensure justice and to ensure fair and equal treatment, the rule of law. So if a person gets that through a plea agreement, it's their choice. If the person gets that through mediation, whether it's public mediation free through the system now in the courts or through payment through a private mediation program, if they're still getting satisfaction and they're getting it faster and they're getting it without uh, conflict, then that's good for that person, that case. Um, And so ultimately that's the aim of justice is to resolve cases personally one by one to the satisfaction of the individual involved.
0: Now that you're off the bench, you get to uh, – which may be a mixed blessing – get to comment on issues of the day that you would have – deferred uh, being a chief justice. But, you know, before you left the court, you said you were referring to your husband who's Japanese-American. As a wife, I felt the impact of unjust Japanese internment on my in-laws. And I'm wondering, in light of that, how do you feel about the current consideration of reparations for black folks in California and nation- nationwide, but especially here in California?
1: Yes. Well, I think that, um, as you know, um, in the California legislature at the time of internment had a much greater role in uh, directing the, uh, in, the 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 imprisoning of innocent Japanese people without due process of law and the taking of property and land and not returning it. And since then, the legislature has issued an apology and a resolution. Uh, I also think they may uh, have some, they have definitely have uh, ownership of some of the Chinese Exclusionary Act behavior as well. And I'm not aware recently of any apology. So now the issue, is reparations. And I think that that it is a sensitive political subject, but it's also a real historical subject. And I think that the right minds, the governor signed the bill. So the governor signed the bill as a signal to people who put in good work to do something about addressing this. And I think they have. And I think good time has been spent. It's worth the discussion for our history. But I also think that in the in, in what's being offered and what's being discussed, that the future is at stake. And this governor is going to have to decide how he's going to address uh, the task force and the recommendations he created.
2: I mean, he, the future, you mean financially, just like what that would do to the budget?
1: No, I mean, what kind of programs could be put in place potentially that might address the historical racism and uh, treatment of black people? All right.
2: Well, we are going to have to leave it there. Former Chief Justice Tani Kantil Sakaue I'm so proud of myself. After 12 years, I can say your name (laughs) correctly. (laughs) Thanks for coming in again. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio.
0: Our engineer today is Christopher Beale. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez is our producer. I'm Scott Schaefer.
2: And I'm Marisa Lagos. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.